Um, we're in week six of Matthew's gospel account. It's called The One We've Waited For. And we are, um, what we like to do around here, if you're new, is between Christmas and, and Easter, we like to take our time, uh, usually in a gospel account, just getting deeply, personally acquainted with who Jesus is before we celebrate what he did for us uh, on Easter Sunday. And so we're in week six. We're in Matthew chapter nine, verses nine through 17. I'm going to read that to us and we'll get rolling. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wine skins, and both are preserved. This is God's Word. <clears throat> so if you were here last Sunday, you may have noticed this is the second week we're in this passage. That's because, like I said seven days ago, uh, there's just too much going on in these verses to cover and really do it justice in, in one week. Uh, at the beginning of this passage, what you have is Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And so last week, that's what we talked about. We, we talked about what it means to be called by Jesus and how you can know if something like that has happened to you. But in the second half of this passage, uh, what we have is Jesus dining in Matthew's house, and then there's these two interactions with different groups of people, exchanges between them and Jesus, where um, what Jesus essentially does, having called Matthew, is he, he goes on to explain exactly what kind of life he's called Matthew into. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the kind of life that Jesus calls us into when he calls us to follow him. Now, before I get to the actual body of the teaching, I just want to um, kind of put this before you. There's a, if you want to call it, a thesis that undergirds this teaching today. And, and I thought it would be, you know, to kind of set, set the tee for what we're going to talk about. Uh, I'll just explain to you what that thesis is. My thesis, uh, it's not really mine. Um, it's that the reason that so many people who profess Christianity, so many people who would say something like, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, the reason that so many people who even practice a lot of religious activity like prayer, like reading the Bible, like going to church, the reason that so many of them, despite what they profess, um, demonstrate so little life change, the reason for that is because they don't actually understand Christianity. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is writing to this church in Colossae. Uh, he doesn't question their salvation at all. In fact, quite the contrary. In verse 6, he says that uh, the gospel had been bearing fruit in their lives, meaning producing tangible evidence of supernatural change in their lives. Paul said that started happening since the day they heard and understood the gospel. And the idea there, and we talked about this last week, is that a human heart does not change simply because we walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, have somebody declare something over us. That's not how life change happens. 
A human heart begins to change in a deep and lasting way when that heart begins to understand in a personal way the grace of God. Uh, years ago, I came across a story, I think it illustrates this real well. It's a true story. It was of a young man. Um, he was being trained to enter the ministry. He was in seminary, and this actually is not that uncommon. In seminary, he actually became a Christian. Uh, he had what we would call a born-again experience, and when he did, uh, he kind of got an attitude about himself because he was, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, well, here I am getting ready to be a leader in Jesus' church. Why hasn't anybody ever explained to me the central message of Christianity before? Why hasn't anybody ever explained the gospel? So he started looking back over his books and his lectures and notes that he took and came to this startling discovery. He discovered people had explained the gospel to him dozens, maybe hundreds of times in his life. He'd read the gospel message before. He even highlighted it in some of his books, but it, it never, he never understood it until now. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that your life doesn't begin to change until you come to a point where you understand the grace of God. You understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means in a more than merely intellectual way. Now, having said that, I'm aware of the fact at least as aware I can be. I can't really know what's going on in another person's heart, but I'm assuming that the vast majority of people that listen to this message are already Christians. And so maybe you hear that and you say, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, but I do understand it. I do understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means. And if that's where you're coming from, let me hopefully in a non-abrasive way say, no, you don't, at least not nearly as deeply as you need to. And the reason I can say that with conviction is because just three verses later in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that since he heard about how the Colossians' lives were changing as a result of them understanding the gospel, in verse 9, he says, I never stop praying for you. And, and what he never stops praying about is that they, he prays for their understanding. He prays that they would understand. So you zoom out from just those two verses, and in verse 6, Paul's saying, I'm so happy that you understand. Three verses later, he says, but I never stop praying that you understand. And that's not something that Paul just kind of as an aberration says to the Colossians. You look across the letters written to churches in the New Testament that we call a New Testament epistles, over and over and over again, Paul's prayer for these churches, just like ours, is that the Christians there would understand more deeply what they already understood. And so I say this to say that regardless of where you're coming from this morning, if you're, if you're investigating Christianity, you're just you're new to it, kind of taking your first steps in it, or you've been walking with Jesus for decades... Our greatest need is to understand more deeply what we might, in a partial way, already understand. And none of us should ever assume that we understand it deeply enough. This is essentially <clears throat> what this passage here in Matthew, now we pivot to Matthew, that's basically the point that Jesus is driving at here. What Jesus is saying, we'll get into it, with his, his um, word pictures and metaphors and, and, and everything, He's explaining that this way of life that he, he came to make available to us, that we call, we used to call it the way of Jesus, sometimes we call it Christianity, it gets called different things in different places. This way of life that Jesus made available to us and invites us to follow him into is like nothing else. And very plainly, you do not understand it until you understand that. And so I want to look at this passage from three lenses. We're going to look first and foremost uh, at the nature of this life that Jesus invites us into. Secondly, we're going to look at some of the hallmarks of it, evidence that you have actually taken part in that life. And then lastly, we're going to look at uh, its power source, <clears throat> the fuel for this, this way of life. First and foremost, 
Uh, let, let's talk about its nature. So I talked about this in a general way. I want to get more specific here. Um, what this particular passage is showing us is that the way of life Jesus has made available to us that we call Christianity, it is what this passage is saying is, is first off, it's a category-breaking way of life. And then on the other hand, secondly, it's a way of life that will always be frequently misunderstood. Let me walk through both of those ideas. Um, at the end of this passage, Jesus offers two metaphors, one about cloth and one about wine. In verse 16, Jesus said, No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Verse 17, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus is making the same point with both of those metaphors. And his point is that Christianity is not, it's not a modification or an alteration of any other way of life. It's something new entirely. Now, his point about the cloth is that when Jesus comes into your life, it's not like he sees you, spiritually speaking, as somebody with a, you know, a shirt that has some, some holes in it and he patches them up. That's not what Jesus does. He offers us brand new garments. And in a similar way with the, the wineskins, I don't know if you... We're aware of this, but wineskins in Jesus' day were made out of animal hide. They would skin the animals, and, and you know, you got to tie off the arms and the legs, and you would just cut off the head, and that's kind of where you poured in the wine. I know it's probably delicious. Thank God we have water bottles now. But the point is, once they were around for a while, and they got as stretched as they were going to get stretched, they got uh, brittle, and they got very inflexible. And if you were to pour new wine, Jesus' readers would have immediately picked up on this. If you were to pour new wine into an old wineskin while it was still fermenting, and that chemical process was taking place, and it's off-gassing and expanding, then the wineskin, the old wineskin, would literally explode, and of course, it'd be ruined. And so the point that Jesus is getting at here is that when you come to Jesus... If you try to do what so many, maybe all of us try to do to a degree, if you come to Jesus and you try to get him to fit into your old ideas or your old paradigms or your old agenda or your old biases or your old prejudices or your old philosophies or ideologies or whatever, what you will find when you're dealing with the real Jesus is that he is always breaking out of those categories. So the first thing we're seeing here is that this way of life we call Christianity, it's a category-breaking way of life. But the other thing this passage in particular shows us is that it's a way of life that, that has always been and it will always be at least occasionally misunderstood. Now, here's, here's where I see this. <clears throat> so at the beginning of this passage, you have um, Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector to follow him. You've, you've probably heard this before, but tax collectors in Jesus' day um, were about the most despised group of people because the, the, the Jews in this day, Matthew's people in this day, were being oppressed by the, by the Roman government. And so what they did is they employed tax collectors like Matthew to basically collect money from their own countrymen in order to give to these foreign oppressors. There was almost no accountability for tax collectors, so it was just assumed that they were always taking more money than they needed to. So, so just understand who Matthew is before Jesus met him. Matthew was the kind of guy that was enriching himself by impoverishing his brothers and sisters. This guy was hated and honestly not without good reason. So when, when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, immediately after this we're told that they were, they were eating at a table in Matthew's house. And apparently um, it, was, it was a little bit of a, like a, 
a banquet or, or a, just basically a legendary party that was taking place in Matthew's house. I, n- I never read this before, but, but this week I was reading commentaries on this passage, and a number of them said that, that um, what was happening here, this wasn't just a one-on-one meal between Matthew and Jesus. This was basically a farewell feast for Matthew as he walked away from his old life in order to follow Jesus, which explains why there were so many people there. Uh, the issue with that is that because of Matthew's background and because of Matthew's occupation, all of his friends and co-workers were essentially the dregs of society. So what you had in Matthew's home in a concentrated setting around Jesus at this table was basically the, the worst people that you could think of. When the Pharisees saw this, they really took issue with it. That's why we read in verse 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can hear a little bit of vitriol in that question. So pause here. A little bit further down, uh, we read about another group that shows up called the disciples of John, is in John the Baptist. John, by this point, was in prison, but people were really captivated by John and inspired by him, so he still had some followers. Uh, And they had an issue with Jesus as well. Their issue wasn't so much who Jesus and the disciples were with, uh, who they were eating with. Their issue was more that they were eating at all. And you see this in verse 14. It says, Then John's disciples came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? John the Baptist was a man that lived without almost any comfort. Uh, He preached in the wilderness. He ate, um, his diet was locusts and wild honey, and he had a camel hair garment. Uh, And so his disciples subscribed to this idea uh, that you're to deny yourself earthly comforts in order to prepare your soul for heaven uh, and kind of loose the bonds of your attachment to this world and your addiction to pleasure and all that kind of stuff. And so they had an issue with the fact that here Jesus and his disciples, while they fast, while even the Pharisees fast, Jesus and his disciples seem to be kind of having a party. It, so let, let me just point this out because it's not immediately um, apparent to us, but it would have been to Matthew's original readers. The funny thing about this passage is that the two groups of people that are, that are questioning Jesus and the disciples, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, were two groups of people that, that aside from this particular passage, they did not get along. They didn't agree on about anything. The reason we know that is because a couple chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's, he's baptizing. You know, towns are emptying to come to John. He's a very captivating individual, and people are coming to him to get baptized. So we're told that the Pharisees showed up to see what's going on, almost certainly because they were jealous of John. But when the Pharisees showed up, try to really picture this, when the Pharisees showed up to see what was going on in John's ministry, John called to them in front of all the crowds gathered and said they were a brood of vipers. John was not impressed with the Pharisees. He saw through their religious hypocrisy, and so his disciples were not fans of the Pharisees either. Uh, So what you're seeing here, and this is really Matthew's point in giving us this passage, is these two groups of people that did not get along and really didn't have a whole lot of common ground, they had at least this one thing in common. They were rattled by Jesus. They could not figure him out. Uh, He didn't really make sense to them. And the things that he did and the people that he did them with brought up some, almost like an insecurity in them, an irritation in them. Right, the Pharisees have a problem with who they're eating with. The disciples of John have a problem with the fact that they're eating at all. But the reason, really the point Matthew's making here is, is, is pretty plain. It's that if you follow Jesus, 
people are going to have an issue with you. Because to follow Jesus is to, is to walk into a life, a lifestyle in which you will at least occasionally be misunderstood. So before I move on to the second idea here, let me just pull two implications from this. One for, for people that are, you know, trying to wrap their head around Christianity and, and one for those of us who are already in. First off, if you're listening to this and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, maybe you're, you're, you're investigating it, but you're kind of put off by it, or, or maybe, um, you know, people have, have represented it poorly to you, and so that's kind of made you callous toward it. It would be really wise for you, based on what we're seeing here, to at least entertain the idea that maybe you don't quite understand who Jesus is or what Christianity is just yet. Uh, there's a good chance, the reason I can say this, is because there are so many people recorded so frequently through the gospel accounts, including Jesus' own disciples that walked with Jesus, that listened to Jesus, that saw Jesus perform miracles, and yet they so often misunderstood who he was and what exactly he came to do. So if you're listening to this and you're not even really sure what you think of Christianity, um, before you make a decision, make sure that you understand exactly what it is that you're accepting or rejecting. Because if you're going to walk away from Christianity with any kind of integrity, you should at least know exactly what it is you're walking away from. Secondly, however, for those of us who are, who are Christians, I think the takeaway from this passage is remarkably clear. If you, as a follower of Jesus, <clears throat> and in, at least in my estimation, I don't know that it's ever been more important to, to, to bring this point to the surface than it is right now. If you and I as followers of Jesus, if we find ourselves fitting neatly and comfortably into any of the categories or the groups or the ideologies or the philosophies of this world, that alone should, should give us real pause. Because Matthew wrote this particular passage in an autobiographical way so as to basically say, listen, the day that I started following Jesus is the day all of these different people from all of these different camps started pelting me with questions because they no longer understood me and couldn't nail me down any longer. So the first idea here that we see in this passage is that the life that Jesus calls us into that we call Christianity is on the one hand, it's a category-breaking way of life, and it's a way of life in which you will at least occasionally be misunderstood by the people around you. All right, now that sort of begs the question, how do I know if, if I've begun to enter into this life? How do I know if, uh, as Scripture says, I've become a partaker of this life? And I see two crystal clear answers in this passage. I'll give them to you on the front end. The, the hallmarks that tell you that, that you have legitimately entered into this way of life that Jesus makes available is on the one hand, you possess the ability to love across boundaries. On the other hand, you possess joy across circumstances, right? Let me walk through both of those. The Pharisees, like we said a moment ago, uh, in particular took issue with who Jesus and his disciples were eating with. Their, um, their primary concern was, was that of contamination, which we all know how contamination works in a physical sense. If you're healthy and you get around somebody who's unhealthy, you don't spread your health to them, they spread their germs to you. Pharisees basically were under the, the, um, the mindset that uh, that same principle worked in the moral and the kind of spiritual realm. And so their, their concern was, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if Jesus legitimately is the one that we've been waiting for, uh, if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, 
then if he's spending time with all of these bad people, that's going to rub off on him. and He's going to become corrupted himself. So in verse 13, uh, Jesus responds to that. We looked at this verse last week, but I said we were going to get into it this week. Verse 13, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is saying here, which would have been just absolutely jarring for the Pharisees in particular to hear, but really, I think if anybody was just raised on Old Testament revelation, what Jesus is saying here is is going to strike you as something new. Jesus is saying, if you want to know where you really stand with God, don't look at your sacrifices, meaning don't look at how well you keep the rules. He's saying, look at the posture of your heart toward those who don't keep the rules. This word mercy here, it's probably not the best English translation. The word just means kindness and compassion and love and all that that entails. So what Jesus is saying, what he's holding up as the first litmus test that you've you've legitimately met him and you're really following him is that you possess the ability to welcome people into your life, to eat at a table with people regardless of who who they are and how they live. Now, it's, you know, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to condemn Pharisees. It's easy to, you know, 2,000 years later to look down at the Pharisees and how could you be so, you know, short-sighted and whatever. And the Pharisees aren't, aren't difficult to understand. This is a group of people that were trying very hard to save themselves by their own good works. Uh, and, of course, in living that way, that creates a deep insecurity where you're always wondering, am I really doing enough for God? And what's he going to say when I stand before him? And so they needed to look down on people. Um, in order to feel better about themselves, in order to sort of prop up their, their own flagging sense of self-worth. It's not difficult to psychoanalyze. It's, it's not difficult to understand. Uh, the truth is, however, every single one of us does exactly what the Pharisees do. It. We just do it in our own particular way. Um, I love the way that, that Tim Chester explained this in his book, A Meal with Jesus. And as I read this, I would just you hear me say this sometimes. I just ask you to please have the security to face yourself and see whether or not this describes you. Because this passage isn't really going to mean a lot until we can see ourselves in it. Tim Chester, not Keller, different Tim. Tim Chester says, everyone is trying to find salvation. And he goes on to say that, you know, if you're not a religious person, you're not going to call it salvation. But everybody has something in their life that they're working toward, that they tell themselves, if I can just get that or keep that, then I'll feel like I matter and my life is worth living. Everybody has a version of salvation. And here's where he goes. He says, every version of salvation involves a principle, a rule, and a law. For instance, if your idea of salvation is to have friends accept you, then your first commandment will be, thou shalt not be uncool. And and uncool people must be avoided at all costs. But here's how how he ends his, his thought here. And he's actually basing this section of the book off of the passage we're looking at today. He says, if other people don't measure up, However you define salvation, he says, if other people don't measure up, then we despise or avoid them, yet, like the Pharisees, we need them so we can feel good about ourselves. And his point here is that everybody has their own version of the game that the Pharisees are playing here. We all have this tendency to draw a line through society and determine who's in and who's out and exclude those that we say are out so that we can feel good about ourselves. Now, here's where this will get a little bit more personal, uh, perhaps a little uncomfortable even. 
It's highly unlikely, obviously, that anybody is dividing the world with the same kind of line and in the same kind of way that the Pharisees are, meaning I, I don't think there's anybody listening to me right now who divides the world into those who are keeping the Old Testament dietary laws and those who are not, all right? That particular dividing line is pretty obsolete for us as modern people. However, and I see this specifically in the last four years, kind of getting dialed up to 10, at an increasing rate, that dividing line for people is the political line. It's the line dividing left and right and red and blue and liberal and conservative and all that. And I want to be real clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Uh, There is, of course, nothing wrong with having really strong opinions about which policies most honor God and and lead overall to a a more perfect society, Uh, just like there's nothing wrong with believing that one party tends to have better ideas than the other. However, when you get to a point, and if you get to a point where you can't even have a conversation with somebody that has a different political ideology than you, much less sit at a table with them and welcome them into your life without it turn, turning into rock'em, sock'em robots, then something is deeply off in your heart. I didn't anticipate any amens there, but I'm going to assume you thought it even if you didn't say it. That's a very political example that I offered, and I realize maybe that doesn't apply to you. So before I move on from this, I'm just going to come at this one, one final way for your consideration. What, what we're seeing in our society at this cultural moment right now is two, broadly speaking, two main ideologies are sort of at war. <clears throat> On the one hand, you have what you can call moral conformity. On the other hand, you have self-discovery. Moral conformity is basically a way of life that says, try hard to be a good person. And it emphasizes things like personal responsibility and hard work and discipline and sacrifice and all those kinds of things. On the other end of the spectrum, you have self-discovery, which basically says, don't let anybody tell you what's good or what's bad. You got to decide all that for yourself. You look inside your heart, whatever you find in there, you go out and do that. You go out and be that and you sort of cast off what anybody else thinks. Those are wildly different ideologies. And people that are deeply embedded in those camps are historically not terribly friendly with one another. But here's where I'm going with this. What's so ironic is they both, they both do the same thing and therefore produce the same result. Here's what I mean. Moralistic people have this tendency to divide the world according to us, the good guys, and then them, the bad guys. You know, us, the ones who you know, take care of us and our own and work hard and sacrifice and, you know, play by the rules and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then the other people on the other side of the line, they're everything that's wrong with the world. But what that does, dividing the world that way, is leads to self, a great deal of self-righteousness. But here's what's ironic. More secular people on the opposite end of the spectrum, they get very irritated with moralistic people about their self-righteousness, but secularism produces just as much self-righteousness as moralism does. Because what secularism does is it tends to divide the world saying, we the progressive people are in. We the open-minded people. We the accepting people. We the tolerant people are in. But the intolerant are out. And what I think is so hilariously ironic about that, follow me here, is that if you are intolerant toward people that you think are intolerant, you're intolerant. And if you are self-righteous toward people that you believe are self-righteous, I hate to break it to you, but you are just as self-righteous as the people you're condemning. The only difference is you've drawn a different line in the sand. So pardon me if I'm belaboring this point, 
But what I'm driving at here is that we can't escape this no matter how hard we try to. The default function of the human heart is to look out into society and draw a dividing line and ostracize and, and, and really demonize those that are on the other side of that so that we can feel good about them ourselves. I say all of this to say what Jesus is showing us in this passage is one of the primary hallmarks that you've really met him and have been changed by him is that you don't need to do that anymore. Now, again, just to make sure I'm, I'm, you don't think I'm saying that, something that I'm not saying, that doesn't mean that when you meet Jesus, all your standards go away. That doesn't mean that when you meet Jesus, everything goes and there's no such thing as, as sin or whatever, that kind of stuff, because Jesus himself, himself still called sin, sin. He literally does so in this passage. And you go through the gospel accounts, Jesus Christ still called sinners to repent. But the way that you can know you're following him is you don't need to demonize people that live and think differently than you do. Instead, quite the opposite this is showing us, you can sit with them around a table. You can have a meal with them. You can welcome them into your life, and they actually find themselves being drawn to you just the way that sinners were so often drawn to Jesus during his time here. So that's the first hallmark of this way of life that Jesus has made available to us. It's, it's first and foremost the ability to love across boundaries. Second, <clears throat> what we're also seeing here is the hallmark that you've really met and been changed by Jesus is you possess a joy across circumstances. So in the last part of this passage, like we, like we touched on earlier, the disciples of John uh, simply can't reconcile how Jesus and his disciples are, are feasting and partying when the state of affairs for God's people was still so bad. Right? In, in their day, Jews were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and, and so God's people were really, they kind of had their, their, their hopes set on a political messiah that would one day come and liberate their people and restore the nation of Israel back to the way that it was in the Old Testament. That's the way that they thought Jesus was going to operate. Um, and Jesus' answer to them in verse 15 is profound. He says, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? What Jesus is saying here is the second hallmark that you've really met him and you've entered into the way of life that he makes available is you possess a joy with you in all circumstances that, that doesn't depend on any circumstances. It doesn't depend on the absence of problems. It depends on the presence of Jesus who goes with you everywhere you go. Now, if I can just pause here, the thing that is most obvious to me is everybody wants what we're talking about here. I don't care, you know, what faith you claim or whether you claim any faith at all. There's not a person on the planet that, if asked, wouldn't say, yeah, I'd love to be more loving. And I certainly would love to have a joy that creates a buoyancy in me regardless of what's going on around me. The question is, how can we become people like this, people of love and people of joy? <clears throat> That'll be the final thing that I speak to today. In this passage, you may have noticed Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And everything about this passage hinges on our ability to understand that metaphor and why Jesus referred to himself specifically that way. So in Jesus' day, the marriage process began when a groom purchased the hand of his bride for whatever the agreed upon price was. The moment that that happened, the two were considered betrothed, and from that moment forward, it was now the groom's full-time job, essentially, to go and build the house that he and his bride-to-be would make a life in. And so at an agreed-upon time, usually about a year later, 
the groom and all of his friends would travel to the home of his bride at midnight. They'd create a torchlit parade through the streets, and the, the bride and all of her friends would be waiting for him, and the whole group would go back to the home that the groom had just completed for his bride. And once they got there, a, a wedding feast, unlike any party we've ever seen in the modern individualistic West, took place. These were wedding feasts that frequently lasted as long as a week. If you're familiar with John chapter 2, this is exactly what the wedding feast at Cana was, uh, which is ironically where Jesus began his ministry. And I'm sure to, to Matthew's readers, to Matthew himself in this passage, I'm sure it was, it was very confusing to people that Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, would begin his ministry at a wedding feast, or that he would call himself the bridegroom during his time here. But when you get to the end of Jesus' life, all of those metaphors make perfect sense because, and I need you to follow me here, just as the marriage process began with a groom having to purchase the hand of his bride, Scripture tells us that Jesus purchased us with his life on the cross. And just like it was a groom's responsibility to go and prepare a home where the two would dwell together, Jesus said the night before he went to the cross that he was going ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And just as that whole process ended with a feast and a celebration, Scripture says that is precisely the way that history will end for all those who've put their trust in Jesus. I want to read Revelation chapter 9, verses 7 to 9 to you. And while I do this, worship team, you can come on back up. It says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Wild as this is to think about, what I just read to you is a glimpse at the end of human history. And like so many great stories, Scripture says it will end with a wedding. Two people that had been estranged coming back together never to part ways again. That's exactly what you have in store for you by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And when the reality of that comes home, it will do two things to us. It will turn us into people of love, and it will turn us into people of joy. Here's why, and I'll leave you with this thought. Earlier, we were talking about dividing lines and the lines that people create by which we partition out who's in and who's out. The truth is none of the the dividing lines that we make really matter. None of them are really all that important. There's only one dividing line that actually matters in the entire universe. That was the dividing line between heaven and earth the dividing line between a holy God and sinful humanity. And the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ stepped across that line in order to bring you into a relationship with himself. What you're seeing in this story, and the more that I spent time in it, the more I thought I just would have given anything to see it, to see Jesus sitting at a table and feasting with sinners. But the end of the Bible says, I just read it to you, that one day Jesus will sit at a table and he will feast with you. Just recently, I heard somebody named Paul Washer, who, if you're familiar with him, he is not known for being a light and fluffy preacher. He said, when you get to the end of your life and you stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to be happier to see you than you are to see him. Because the love that we have for Jesus absolutely pales in comparison to the love that he has for us, that he demonstrated for us on the cross. And so when that love comes home to us, 
it will turn us into the kinds of people that are able to step across boundaries in order to extend the same love that God has extended us through Christ. And more than anything else, it'll turn us into people of joy because we will know that whatever we experience in this life, however hard it gets, our wedding day is coming. And the day will quickly be here when we stand before and see face to face the one we've waited for. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, our, our greatest need is, is just simply to understand, to understand who Jesus is, to understand the gospel, to understand what he's done for us, to understand how much we need it, to understand how sufficient he is in this life that he's welcomed us into. God, I just ask that you give us a fresh set of eyes to see you this morning, just as Paul never stopped praying for that Colossian church, that they would understand more deeply what they thought they already understood. Father, would you just help us understand more deeply what we might already, in a partial way, understand. Please help us to see Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, paying the price so that we could enter into a life that we had no access to on our own merit, and in seeing that, that we would be changed all throughout our lives into people of love and people of joy that represent him well in a world that desperately needs him. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.